Broadcasting from the News Radio 102.9 KARN Radio Center and Studio 1B, it is Guatney Unplugged with Scott Romine. Hey, Scott Romine here. We don't get to do a lot of out-of-state shows, but we are doing one today. We're over in Birmingham, Alabama at the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, the probably most incredible place in the country, in my mind. We're talking with Jeff Ray. He's the executive director. How are you, Jeff? Where did you grow up, and, and when were you introduced to motorcycles? Well, this uh, long story there. Uh, born here in Birmingham, Alabama, at the old Hillman Hospital downtown, which is now UAB. And uh, grew up in a rural area uh, where you either rode a bicycle or your parents bought you a minibike. So for my 12th birthday, I got a little Honda SL70, which is interned here at the museum today. Oh, that's great. But uh, you start you start that out. And, of course, you know, where I grew up, you uh, you rode a motorcycle or a mini bike till you got 16, and you threw that in the back of the garage and got a car, and, you know, life moved on. So motorcycles have always been a part of my life and uh, continues to be. My dad over here bought me an Indian when I was about five, and it's in my it's in my living room today. I love that you still have yours. Well, mine, I restored it several years ago after both my sons rode it, and uh, it sat in my living room until my wife finally says, this has got to go. Either you or the bike's got to go. <laughs> well, what led to working here? Oh, it's another long story. Um, in my past life, I was a line mechanic, run a small shop in a little town called Bessemer, Alabama. And in the evenings, I would do uh, street rod work, uh, customizing, uh, fabricating, uh, electrical work, stuff of that nature. The shop I worked at, we had a custom exhaust shop, so I did a lot of custom stainless steel work on the street rods and stuff in the area, and I just had a a reputation develop. And when Mr. Barber decided to start his car collection, uh, they were looking for a mechanic and a fabricator to come to work for him. And... uh, I was known in the community, and they came down to recruit me to come to work for them. And it's kind of interesting because it was, well, we have a gentleman in town that's a businessman. We can't tell you who he is. He's wanting to start a car collection. We can't tell you where it is, but we'd like for you to come to work for us. It's like said, top secret, like Bruce Wayne or something. And you I, know? Just, I expect him to throw a blindfold on me to take me to see the place. But, uh, you know, I was like, <laughs> look, guys, I've got a wife, two kids, and a mortgage and a dog i got to think about. So, you know, I need some job security. You know, working for a, uh, a car collector that could be whimsical, uh, I don't think I'm interested. Tell, uh, tell me about the founder. George Barber, of course, started the, the Barber Museum here. But what, what, is, what is his background? Is in milk, correct? Well, yes. Uh, His family uh, came to Birmingham back in the 20s, and they were in the dairy processing business. Uh, Never owned a cow in their life. They always bought raw raw milk, processed it, and did home delivery and supported the mom-and-pop stores in Mm -hmm. the area. And that was three generations worth. Of course, Mr. Barber took over in the uh, 60s after his father passed away. And uh, he's a very strong-headed businessman. Uh, When he wants something, he sets his mind to it can make it happen. Um, he got into racing uh, while his father was still alive, very successful in SCCA racing. I think he would have done a lot better nationally, but his dad required him to be at work every Monday morning, so he couldn't travel far outside the southeastern region. But um, he had like 67 wins in SCCA. He, got to, he raced Porsches and Brabham's and stuff, and we actually have located uh, his Brabham BT-8. We found it in the U.K. a couple of years ago and brought it back, so we actually have one of his cars here in the collection. He sounds like the Southern Iron Man. He really is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the whole business thing, when his father passed away, he just immersed himself in the business, gave up the car racing. Uh, he dabbled in real estate on the side, but, you know, the, the dairy was his thing and continued to grow the real estate business and continued to grow the dairy business. Um, and it's just decided you know, he wanted to do a car collection. And, uh, so he's going to go that way. He's going to do cars. Who steers him to say, hey, that's been done. Let's do motorcycles. Well, 
uh, if you look up collector in the encyclopedia, you find George Barber's picture. Okay. He's the ultimate collector. I got gotcha. you. And when he decided to do cars, you know, uh, he wanted to have the best. Well, you know, in the car world, the best collections have been assembled and disassembled and reassembled and disassembled. But uh, the shop foreman at the time was an old friend of his named Dave Hooper. And Dave was an old-school motorcycle enthusiast. And um, after working with cars for several months, uh, he just said, you know, George, why don't you take a look at motorcycles? He said, you're wanting to do the best of something. And with a car, you get a paint job and a set of wheels when you got through with it. But with a motorcycle, when you finish that project, you look at it and you've got a work of art. Mm-hmm. You can see what the designer intended for it to do. You can see how the mechanical aspects work. And I said, it's just a, it's, it's a, an amazing thing to look at. And so Mr. B followed that pursuit, said, okay, let's take a look at a few motorcycles. And uh, it started with a Victoria Bergmeister, which is here in the collection. And he looked at that, and he said, you can see everything that was intended. Design, elegance, everything is right here in front of you. So uh, let's go with motorcycles. Plus, the best motorcycle collections hadn't been done before. That had never been and, done. And, uh, you yeah. know, the, the whole question was, well, what is the best and how far? And uh, we don't know what that is yet. Well, everything here is so pristine. I've wondered, what is the ratio to things that are totally original to things that have been restored? Well, we look at the collection, and part of it, remember, it is a collection that started it. So a collector can do anything they want to do. Sure. If they want everything to be painted orange with green wheels on it, then you (laughs) paint it orange and put green wheels on it. But when you start, when you hang a museum on your shingle out front, you have to stop and think about what are you doing. And um, I think, you know, it's debatable out there what history is, but history is history, and you can't change history as much as you want to. You can't. Uh, so what we've tried to do is in, in order to focus, um, you know, there's a lot of different elements of motorcycling. So what we tried to start out with, let's focus on representing motorcycling the way the manufacturer intended. And that can come two ways. You either find a pristine, original, unrestored piece, or you find a piece that hasn't been treated very well, and you take it back as close as you can to the manufacturer's concept. Uh, you know, we look at three levels. We look at restoration, preservation, and conservation. And uh, restoration is simply an interpretation. Uh, you know, you can take, there's a lot of information out there on Harley-Davidson's. Sure. There's not so much information out there on, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a rune. Uh, yeah, you know, true. But, uh a rune parts are still available for it, and Harley Davidson. If you if you can't find it, somebody's you know making a replica for it. You can do that, but you get to a Yamaguchi. Everybody yeah, goes, okay, what's a thing. Yamaguchi? That sounds like a disease. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a it's a rare motorcycle from Japan that Hodaka developed out of. Uh, but you know, you you try to find original ones of those, but it's very difficult to do. Uh, so you do want to do some restoration work. Um, but what we try to do is we try to find originals first, and that's that's the easiest way to have a collection if you can get all original bikes and do but unfortunately time is not kind and people aren't yeah. kind and most of these vehicles were designed to lean up against a pine tree in the front yard and unfortunately a lot of them did that uh, so we are forced into having to do a little more than just preserving it we have to do some conservation work or full restoration and we have a staff here that can accomplish all three of those yeah, you know, I've noticed myself, it's easy to find an old Goldwing that is pristine, but find an old sport bike with the fairings factory and not, because they were just destroyed, you know, romped on and raced and everything else. I mean, I'm sure some bikes are a lot harder to find than others. Yeah. Well, you know, what we're seeing too is the marketing trend, like in the automobile industry, 
Uh, there's a constant evolution in design. And it's not to improve the car. It's just to make you want to give up the one you got and get a new one. Yeah. And they're not designed to last 30 years. They're not designed to, you know, you barely can't get them paid for before they fall apart. <laughs> uh, so, and we're seeing that in motorcycles too. They're using technology, which is fantastic, uh, but they're using materials, which, uh, you know, you take an e-box chassis and you, you try to replicate the finish that's on a galvan, I mean, excuse me, on a, a, a clear coat or uh, anodized frame. It's impossible to do that. Uh, it's impossible to replicate some of the finishes on the engine cases that are die cast. Um, so it's always good to find original. But mm-hmm. a lot of these products that they're using today aren't time, you know, meant to stand the test of time. And sport bikes especially, you know, they they get a lot of road rash on them and oh, they yeah. wind up going to an aftermarket fairing because the manufacturers keep stuff for seven years and boom, it's all gone. So, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to do. And, and sport bikes, they seem to be, they were bad about changing them, not waiting a few years. The very next year would be different than the year before. Well, sport bikes, it's a whole different mentality because, you know, it's, it is the racing mentality. It's the look, the replication of racing, and that technology comes off the racetrack. And, you know, we're seeing technology develop weekly on the racetrack. That's true. And that transfers over to street bikes about as quick. So, you know, if you've got a one-year-old Yamaha R1, you, you're dated technology. You know, yeah. there's something better out there now. Everybody wants the latest and greatest. That is correct. <laughs> Jeff, this building that we're in, I mean, it's incredible, but this was not the original location for the collection, right? Did it start somewhere else and then you built this? Well, we were in a little warehouse on the south side of Birmingham that adjoined the Barber Dairy Delivery Truck Maintenance Facility. And uh, we were just kind of four guys working in a little shop off to the side and just continued to grow and expand. And whenever they uh, decided to shut down the truck repair facility, we were able to take that building over. But still, we were under the radar screen. It was a very nondescript building. Uh, We weren't open to the public. And Mm. we just would come in and do our work and create this private collection for George Barber. Whenever we decided to apply for our 501c3 status as a nonprofit, um, there was a requirement we open to the public. And that was something that really wasn't a desirable thing. Mr. Barber wanted to keep the uh, collection quiet. Uh, So we created a sign that would roll out of the building when we opened on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, and we'd roll it back in at the end of the day when we closed. And we really went out of our way to try to not be open to the public. But first year we were open, 10,000 visitors came to see us. Wow. Because the rumor mill of this crazy dairy farmer in Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama, with his motorcycle collection that opened to the public was out there. And uh, by that time, we had been participating with ARMA, the American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association. And uh, we had done quite well in racing vintage motorcycles. Of course, you know, that program is you're racing for bragging rights in a block of wood, and it's a hole in the asphalt you dump money into to accomplish anything. Sure. But it was fun. But it was also a great way to introduce ourselves to the motorcycle community. And uh, we had developed that reputation by participating in racing, so when we quietly opened that museum, it was, uh, it was, it was interesting to see. And we operated there, uh, still just testing the waters, you know, open three days a week, no weekends, um, seeing people come through. Uh, and uh, listening to the feedback. But it wasn't until the Guggenheim Museum contacted us that we really realized the possibilities of the museum. Uh, We were the largest lender to the Art of the Motorcycle exhibit in New York uh, in 98. Uh, We had 21 bikes there. Uh, We traveled to the Field Museum with it the following winter, and in the following spring, we went over to Bilbao, Spain with it. And the show uh, was phenomenal. In New York, it was over 270,000 visitors over three months. It's still the largest art exhibit held at the Guggenheim. 
Uh, at the Field Museum, it was a very harsh winter. They set records there as attendance as a paid exhibit at the Field Museum. And then Bilbao was just amazing because that introduced it to Europe. And uh, we saw a three-month a three run be extended to a six-month run. And when they closed that exhibit, there were people still standing outside trying to get in. And when we were sitting in a restaurant there, Mr. Barber looked at me and said, we can do this in Birmingham. Yeah. And I said, what, dinner? He says, no, 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 no. <laughs> we can actually take our collection and we can make something special for Birmingham. We can use it to draw tourism. We can do a lot of things, but it becomes a tool. So we came back and did due diligence. And Birmingham is a pretty nice-sized city. And we've got some fantastic institutions, art museums, zoos, science centers, stuff like that. But the largest tourist attraction in the city area was a shopping mall. And that's pretty oh, embarrassing wow. for a city yeah. to have something like that. So we decided that, you know, locating in the city of Birmingham to do something positive, let's look at tourism dollars. Most important thing on tourism dollars, Walt Disney educated Orlando on this years ago. Uh, you want to bring people to your community. You want them to buy the $10 hamburger they would not buy at home, pay taxes on that, stay in hotel rooms, pay taxes on that, fly in, rent cars, pay taxes on that, and then go home when you don't have to educate their kids or take out their garbage. And those are good dollars for a community to mm -hmm. have. And that's what we looked at. Birmingham had great institutions, but everybody slept in their own beds and eat the meals that they would eat. And they really didn't spend money in the community that they aren't already spending. So we said, how do we draw people in? And that's where the Barber Museum came in. And the development of the test track, which became a racetrack, which now we now host uh, IndyCar, Moto America, and we conduct the Barber Vintage Festival. And we also host... Uh, a Porsche Sport Driving School here, as well as Mercedes Brand Immersion Program. So all these things bring people to Birmingham that wouldn't come to Birmingham otherwise. Who designed the building here initially? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Mr. Barber's a visionary. And in his mind, he saw a museum being a parking deck. And he that's remembered very he, smart. He remembered a parking deck from downtown Birmingham when he was a kid, which was uh, multi-levels. And it had an intertwined spiral drive up and drive down. And he thought that was just really neat. So when we looked at the building, we were saying, okay, how do we design a building to emulate a parking deck? And uh, we, it's pretty easy to come up with a parking deck design, but how do you get that spiral? And we found that from ADA requirements, the having to have access and stuff, you know, if you went from floor to floor with the ramp, it had to be so long with landings and stuff. And as it worked out, the way the square footage of the buildings laid out, that spiral could be in the center of the building and meet all the code requirements. And even the freight elevator, which we utilized and learned a lot from working with other museums, instead of hiding it in a corner and trying to disguise it, we just pushed it right out to the middle of the building and made an architectural feature out of it. And these are all brainchilds of George Barber. You know, we just simply ah, take so his great. lead and follow through. So great. So was the racetrack built first or was that something you envisioned as being part of the building or? Okay, we're a living museum. Okay. We have a restoration team, and all the bikes are, are restored, and uh, we run a lot of them we restore. We pickle a lot of them we restore. But uh, we always had a need to be able to exercise or stretch the legs on a motorcycle. So when we were looking at building a building, because there was so much property available for us, we decided, or Mr. Barber decided, that he wanted to build a test track. This is just a ribbon of asphalt in the woods that we could take bikes out of the museum and demonstrate on. And those of us that are married know that your wife says, well, honey, for a few dollars more, you can get this. Yeah. <laughs> so while we're designing the race, the, the test 
track in the woods, you know, it became apparent that, you know, for a couple of dollars more, you can do this, and then you're set for a future thing. And then once you've done that, for a few dollars more, you can do this. So we went from a, um, a test track or a ribbon of asphalt in the woods to a level one F1 test facility. And why not? Uh, and why know, not? Right. You know, while you're doing it, let's just go all in. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the intent, uh, you know, we had a reputation of a motorcycle racetrack. And, uh, you know, it's 45 feet wide, 2.38 miles long. It is a large racetrack. But the rumor mill had us as a motorcycle racetrack because we're associated with the Motorcycle Museum. And we had our track designer design it for motorcycle safety. Uh, if you look at the track, we use uh, off-camber curbing versus sawtooth curbing. Uh, we have large runoff areas. Uh, the projectories, you got over 100 feet of runoff you know, before you impact uh, a barrier or something. And all this was designed safety for a motorcycle, which ensured safety for a car. But, you know, being misinterpreted, it's a, it's a motorcycle racetrack. It's too small. Well, those are people that haven't been here. And uh, the naysayers have never, never walked the track, never driven the track. But once you're here, you realize it's a very technical track because that's another decision we had to make. Uh, there's two types of tracks out there. Those that people have died on and those that people are going to die on. And we have to understand mm-hmm. that. Uh, but you can design a track that you can make sure that you're taking all effort to make it safe. And the best way to make it safe is control speed. So if you have a technical track, you're controlling your speed. So we can never run a 24-hour endurance here. Nobody could survive that. But it is a very technical track that you have to think about every turn coming up, and there's no place to rest on this track. That's by design. Ah, I got you. And you've got racing going on, actually, this weekend. What kind of racing is that? Well, this is Moto America, and this is the evolution of what we remembered as AMA Superbike. Okay. You know, in uh, 2008, um, we had some a lot of things going on in our economy, a lot of things going on with racing. Um, and, of course, the AMA spun off Pro Racing, and DMG picked it up, Daytona Motorsports Group. And they ran it for a while, and then it got taken over by the Crave Group with Moto America. And uh, they have worked hard to resurrect the presence, the co- uh, the competition, and the whole entertainment value of what AMA Pro Racing was. And they've done a really good job bringing it back. And you also have a proving grounds. I guess that's a big concrete, a sea of concrete or something? Yes, it's, uh, it's something new to the park. We added this about 10 years ago. It's new to us. Uh, but it is a, a multi-use facility. It's got uh, a mini drag strip in it. It's got a figure eight. It's got different disciplines you can set up. It's got uh, high banking on it. And it's just used for a lot of different things, whether you're testing, whether you're doing a demonstration, you're doing a product launch. It's just a multi-use area. We have seven miles of off-road course that can be utilized with that. So it is just a multi-use facility. What do you really adhere to? I mean, are, are you looking for total originality? Would you possibly go and look in, at several of that exact bike before you settled on one? Um, and, and how important is it if you're going to restore them, whatever, do they all run? Do you guys like to see this thing actually fire up and run on its own before it is on display? Okay, well, let's, let's back up. Acquisition. Um, as many different scenarios as you can come up with, the answer is yes. Um, when we started collecting, it was over 33 years ago, and uh, that was back in the days where you took a Polaroid, put it in an envelope, and mailed it to somebody that was a motorcycle. <laughs> yes, it's been a while. And, uh, and every now and then you may get a rolled-up piece of paper that was a fax trying to describe a motorcycle, and then they took an image of it and sent it to you. It was a black square on the paper. But primarily you would just um, – something that uh, – 
interested you in description, and you would either jump in the truck or jump on an airplane and go look at it. And, uh, you know, the common stuff you can find it locally. Um, we were looking for the stuff that wasn't quite so common. When we started was the European bike craze era where the British bikes were king. And uh, so, you know, that was kind of the, the transition. And mm-hmm. so you're looking at stuff like that. Um, Japanese bikes were a dime a dozen. You know, they were common utility pieces that everybody had, so you weren't interested in those really to speak of. Um, uh, but we, uh, we really didn't have a hit list. It was just motorcycles. Let's take a look at what's out there. We want to represent motorcycles from, you know, a, a Cub to a, a, a big cruiser uh, and everything in between. So, you know, it was kind of, you know, open, open ground. Anything that's available, we'll take a look at And that's still our motto. Yeah, sure, send us some information, we'll look at it. You know, are we still looking for 305 Hondas? Not really, but if you want to donate one to the museum, that helps us further the cause. But as we evolved, it got into our vintage racing, where we got introduced to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, there's there's collectors out there that have motorcycles that you probably stand a better chance of getting a date with his 16-year-old daughter than you would getting his motorcycle. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't own the bike. They're just uh, the custodian of this bike for a period of time. And they're considering who's going to be the custodian next time. And so you deal with people like that as well. I think if you visit our facility and you see what we do and understand our philosophy, you understand that we're a pretty good custodian for that. Big time. Uh, So people, you know, we get offered stuff a lot. And, you know, there is a, you know, thing that, okay, this guy's got deep pockets and we can ask an enormous price for a bike and we don't pay it. We're bottom feeders. You know, we're looking to preserve history. We're not looking to make someone's retirement. Um, and there's nothing's really made of unobtainium. There's a few pieces, but not a lot. So patience. You know, we have a term called patient money. And uh, I have purchased bikes that I've known about for 10 years. It's amazing the price does come down. Just waiting for it to get yeah. realistic. But then the other side of things, I never will forget, you know, 20 years ago, uh, we were looking for a black shadow. And my comment was, we'll never pay $20,000 for a black shadow. Never. And we didn't. We paid forty five, Because, you, <laughs> wait, you know, there's an old saying in collecting, you never pay no, too much, you just buy too soon. And it works, the other way. it works the other way as well. Um, but, you know, as time's progressed, we've seen the guys that were interested in the British bikes 30 years ago are no longer with us, are no longer capable of enjoying that interest. But what's happened is the generation before that now uh, that come in behind them have an interest in Japanese bikes. Oh, we're no seeing, doubt. We're seeing, we're seeing that market emerge right now. And we've been able to keep up with that market. I feel that our collection is very diverse. Uh, we represent pretty much everything out there. You know, the best comment we can hear, like this weekend, is, man, I've seen every bike I've ever owned in this building. And that's important because it's the oh, rendition, yeah. it's the connection. It doesn't have to be a multi-thousand-dollar GP bike. It might be a $600, you know, mini bike. And what we try to do is we want that reminisce. And, you know, one of the satisfying things to see a gentleman come in in his 60s, he got his grandson with him. And you catch the conversation that grandpa's explaining to grandson, this is the bike that I rode when I was your age. And, uh, you know, that connection is pretty cool. It happens all day. And, you know, we see it all the time. You know, even the sense of my pride to bring my grandson in here and say, this is the bike I rode. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's special. And, you I'm, know, we, we're running into a situation, too, with bikes. Is, uh, the safety issue, and you got a lot of mamas that say, my kid's not riding a motorcycle. And, you know, we're seeing an impact of that. And um, uh, the bike has got, you know, kind of an image of being unsafe. Um, the bike is only unsafe if the operator is unsafe. It's true. I am curious, though, 
how many of the bikes start and run or how important that was that when the collection started okay. say okay everything on the floor in this museum with the exception of three models can be started and run within an hour that's, that's incredible. Simply because when they're when they're put on the floor, they're they have been restored, they have been maintained, or they have you know been gone through to make sure that it is serviceable. Now we do have to drain fuels out of them. We have to remove batteries or disconnect batteries and stuff. So, uh, and of course, hydraulics changed the world of motorcycles. So you know you've got to starting and run is one thing to be able to ride is another because hydraulics. But uh, you know we. Usually, it's uh, making sure the carburetor gaskets haven't stuck themselves in when they dry out, and gas fuel, I mean, fuel and oil, and uh, fire up and go. Give us some examples of the most valuable bikes in the museum. Uh, well, value is an interesting question. Um, some of our most humbly motorcycles are our most valuable. Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, you have to decide what creates a value. And um, Rare. Well, rare is not necessarily the most valuable. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into it. Uh, if, we, if we had to find a rare motorcycle that's high value, that would probably be a, an old race bike that's associated with a well-known name racer. Mm -hmm. um, and then that value is arbitrary. Uh, some of them are uh, works racers. You know, some of our most valuable bikes are going to be um, bikes from the 50s and 60s that were factory built, intended to only race, and they had some important names associated with them. Um, to my knowledge, a million-dollar motorcycle in a public forum has never been sold, to my knowledge. Mm. Uh, there's rumors of private sales out there, and um, they call them private for a reason. You won't know the details of it. But as far as a public auction, a true million-dollar motorcycle sale, I'm not aware of happening yet. Um, we have several bikes in our collection that are, are very valuable to us. Uh, and, again, a bike is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it that day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult to pin out one bike. Uh, but, you know, early race bikes, you know, mainly from the 60s and uh, early, early 70s where the technology was evolving – with very simple tools. You know, today we have computer imaging and we can do all this and we can take all the ground gained by this these guys sitting with a slide ruler and test and error and we can plug that into a computer and have an answer in 30 seconds where, you know, it was, it was three years on a test track to accomplish one goal back in those days. Are there any bikes that you've really wanted in the museum that have just eluded you? You haven't found a good example? Yeah, there's some bikes out there you know, if, I, if I call one of them out I'll get 20 phone calls with opportunities <laughs> coming in. but uh, you know the museum doesn't have a cyclone and uh, this is a bike that um, uh, an early race bike from the you know, teens and 20s um, there were some factory units built because even back in the teens the marketing antics that uh, if you can win on Sunday you'll sell on Monday applied yeah. so you your manufacturers one of their way of marketing was to go racing, and uh, put a bike out there. And what they built street bikes. So we see a lot of uh, cyclones on the market right now, you know, $750,000, rumors, rumors of one selling for a million. You could have Elvis's uh, bike cheaper than that, probably. A lot of those uh, are bikes that took a street cyclone engine, rolled it into an Indian chassis, and boom, you've got a cyclone racer. And that was a period thing to do. But a true factory cyclone, uh, you know, they're uh, – they're the unobtainium unicorn motorcycle that's out there. Um, and there's a few other pieces that, you know, would be interesting to have. But 
Um, for every bike that we don't have, you know, I can show you five or six you've never heard of before, and uh, just as equal in its value and or equal in its uh, importance in history. I would think that you not only attract a lot of fans, you've got to attract some celebrities. I'm guessing maybe Jay, Jay Leno has been here to see this. Mr. Leno's been here to see this. Uh, he's been in with the Porsche program, working with them, and he's come to the museum, and he and Mr. Barber converse often. He also, when, back in our racing days, he would host our guys out in uh, L.A. and uh, store our race equipment for us, and then he would uh, bring our team on the show to pick on his southern redneck buddies. So it was uh, always fun to do that. But he's, he's, he's a true enthusiast, automotive, and motorcycle. Has Keanu Reeves been here? Keanu Reeves has been here. Uh, he came in and... Uh, uh, actually, he got left behind by the group that brought him in here, and I had to take him back to the hotel room later that night. He just got so enthralled with the museum, he couldn't leave. <laughs> what, now, did he put, you know, he builds bikes, correct? Yeah, he does build bikes. Has he put one in the museum yet? Not yet, but we're not through yet either. I'm sure that could happen. Nice guy, though. Super nice guy. He's, he's real. Uh, there's an old saying here in the South, he puts his pants on one leg at a time. He's guy. <laughs> I know that saying, definitely. So you're in the Guinness Book of World Records. How did that come to be? Did they come out and count the bikes, or how did that work? Well, uh, we had a gentleman that worked in uh, the real estate company that just thought it'd be great if we got recognized in the Guinness Book of World Records. So he reached out uh, on our behalf and... Um, ask a question, what it takes to do it. Uh, there's a form that needed to be filled out and a site visit took place. And uh, lo and behold, we got recognized as the largest collection of motorcycles. That's just, that's unbelievable. I, do you have things like celebrity-owned things? Like I, I saw an article recently that one of Elvis Presley's motorcycles was sold. Would that be something like would land here eventually, or do you have some things like that? Well, uh, there's a lot of those Elvis bikes out there. Yeah, there probably but, is, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, we've got, uh, you know, uh, Al Pacino's Honda from Serpico is in the collection, uh, the bike he rode. You know, uh, he wasn't a big bike guy, but he rode the bike as a prop, and we got it here. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, Lawrence Fishburne's Biker Boys, uh, the Suzuki that from the movie is, is here. Um, of course, we've got a replica of the Captain America from Easy Rider because there's not an original bike out there. There's two people in the world that would disagree with me on that, but I know the story behind them. So there are no originals there's left. No originals left. Uh, there oh were only, gosh. There were only two built for the movie. Long story. Uh, one of them got crashed in the movie. One of them got lifted from the prop yard somewhere between the making of the movie. And uh, of course, that bike probably lives on. 60 different custom bikes in Southern California right now, but not, ah. just not in one piece. Uh, ours is built by Deliverance Motorcycles out of Arizona. Uh, he was commissioned by museums to build them, and uh, he built five of them. And it took him three years to do the research and source the, the, you know, the original catalog parts to build the bikes. And there's a great story on you know, how the original bikes were built, and nobody felt that the movie would become a cult movie. Sure. And, um, but, uh, you know, that's what we have. But we're up front with, the, with that. We also have a really neat movie prop, which is a humbling experience when you enter the museum. We've got the bike that uh, from uh, Wild Wild West that Kevin Klein rode, and it is simply a movie prop. But it's amazing how many people come in and remember their uncle having one of those. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure they did. Yeah, Batman's motorcycle would be a great addition to the collection. Yeah, I missed that one. I you had, know, uh, the original Batman that Robin Sidecar. That's right. Also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if it still exists or not. I think the uh, boat. Believe it or not, uh, it's uh, last time I saw it, it was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. 
at the a museum there. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've went through that museum. I didn't yeah. realize that was the original one. Yeah, I had a chance to buy that about 25 years ago. Oh, it's one it, of those it, things. It was too hokey at the time, but it would oh, be, it, be great to have it now. Oh, it would be great to have it now, for yeah. sure. Or even the one in The Dark Knight, the more recent Batman movies yeah, would that, be great. Yeah, those were available at auction. I think it was more of a publicity stunt, but those were available about five years ago at an auction in Las Vegas, and uh, they no sold. The Bat Pod. Yeah, it did not sell. There are a few cars in here. Would you speak to the the, the cars or what it, what you decide car wise to be in here? Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, we're Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, and it's primarily known as a motorcycle museum. But as I said earlier, you know, our roots were <clears throat> automobile, and uh, Mr. Barber really w- was not interested in the cars that he raced, but just cars in general. And uh, as we moved away from cars and got into bikes, he still held, held cars dear, and um, he always had an appreciation for the English cars. He always had an appreciation for the Lotus Marquis. And uh, he's just, you know, what Chapman was able to do with little of nothing was always amazing. You know, take surplus water pump engines and strip them down and use the lightweight alloy motors to put in a lightweight uh, tube-type chassis in a car, develop the mid-engine car. And even Mr. Barber in his racing would race against Lotuses and was always amazed at what they could do. Um, so he really got an infatuation with a Lotus, and uh, we got an opportunity to pick up a Lotus 21 years ago, and uh, it's probably the most elegant design cars there is. And again, you step back and look at that, and it's a work of art. So from the true collection standpoint, Lotus is real easy. You got Lotus 1, you got Lotus 109, and then you go into the different continuations of Lotus through different ownership. But uh, then you can get one of everything. Get a Lotus 1, get a Lotus 2, Lotus 3. So it became the collection aspect of it. Uh, getting in touch with Chapman's son, Clive Chapman, uh, still runs classic team Lotus. This is a support mechanism for people who own cars. Developed a great relationship with him and started tracking down cars. And we now have the largest Lotus car collection known to exist. Uh, we got a few holes with, the, uh, with certain cars, but uh, we've got a really nice collection of Lotus cars now. And that's just been a continuation. We really got one nice. I got a Lotus 11 that uh, was on the cover of, uh, I think it was Car and Track magazine back when Mr. Barber was a teenager. And um, it was a Lotus 11. It was Jay Chamberlain's car, beautiful white with a blue stripe on it. And uh, Mr. Barber slept with that magazine under his pillow for months because <laughs> he, wanted to, he wanted to race. And, of course, his mother wound up sending him to race school to learn to race. But he always remembered that car, and he would tell us that story. Lo and behold, we found the car on the West Coast. And it's now in the museum. Oh, that's stores. awesome. Uh, and, you know, it's just his memory. Uh, it's pretty cool to have it here. My James Bond drove a Lotus, Roger Moore. Yes, he did. Was, uh, I think it was, uh, what is it, Elites? Yeah, but I think there was a couple of them. Blue, blue and a spree, which yeah. can also turn into a submarine, it can. as well, you know. That movie prop actually sold at auction here a while. But all that stuff comes full circle. It, it comes available, and there's always somebody out there that wants to buy something. Like that. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the lower level. The last time I was here, it was not open, but occasionally it is open. Yeah, it's open this weekend, and that is the work area for the the restoration team. Uh, that's where all the magic happens. Uh, we keep several projects going at a time. Uh, we have a car side, we have a bike side, we have our own machine shop, we have a race specialty shop, we have a fabrication shop. And these are all things that the techs use to ultimately complete restoring a vehicle or preserving a vehicle back to its original manufacturer specifications. Are they full-time working down there? I mean, I guess not. maybe not on the weekends, but... Well, they're 40 hours a week, yeah, and it's, it's full-time. There's uh, four techs down there that, that maintain full-time. I got uh, one part-time guy. Uh, our machinist is part-time now, and uh, it's uh, full-time. There's always something going on. 
you know, this, the thing you got on a restoration, if you're doing a full restoration, um, it's not like taking your car into the local service dealership, no. dropping it off on Monday morning and picking it up Tuesday afternoon. Um, you know, some of these restorations take 500 hours and 10 years to do because parts are made of unobtainium. And, you know, our goal in a restoration is try to find an original part. If you can't find an original part, then you try to find a period replacement piece from, you know, that you can use. And then, you know, we have the capabilities of producing. You know, we have CNC machines. We have our th- uh, the new Barber Adva- Advanced Design Center. We have 3D printers up there that we can do a lot of stuff. If, even if we need to print a pattern for casting, we can do that now by scanning. You can scan an original, I guess, worn-out part or whatever. and You can reconstruct it digitally and then uh, print it, make sure it works, and then uh, go have it cast. And you can build anything if you can now do it, that. Uh, it's not the cheapest route to take, <laughs> I bet. Me, but it, you know, it, it's what the investment made to continue doing what we do. I got you. So right now you might have how many cars in process? Currently there's two cars in process here in the shop. We've got uh, three in process in Germany right now. We don't do everything in-house all the time. We I got you. do some farming out. Uh, and right now in the, in the shop, as far as bikes, there's probably eight bikes in process. I would guess with all these motorcycles, there probably somewhere is a storage of a bunch more motorcycles that are rotated out or... It's about two floors down. Okay, so they are here. They're just... Do they get rotated around? Yes, we do. We keep about a thousand bikes on the floor visible. Now, visible, they may be on a rack eight feet off the ground, but if you're in the museum, you'll see a thousand motorcycles. Uh, But we've got 800 more stored... So you could change the whole museum out if you wanted. Well, those 800, there's probably 350 that could go to the floor. The rest of them are, you know, uh, I call it the boneyard. The guys who work here call it job security. (laughs) Talk a little bit about what does it cost to to tour people that are interested interested in coming over, kids and adults. Okay, well, a one-day admission to the museum is 1850. And we also have a three-day pass that you can get during the weekends, about $35. Uh, and like I said, it's uh, if you're here for the day, you're here for the day. Your ticket gets you. You can come and go, uh, go out to get something to eat, come back. Average visitor with a family can find about two and a half hours here because uh, not only do you get to see the museum and see cars and see bikes, we have bridges that exit the museum that go out over the track, and whatever is on the track that day, you get immersed into that. And there's also just the grounds themselves. You know, it's a botanical garden. It really is. And uh, when you leave the building to go across one of the bridge, you go, of course, you're, there's a waterfall you're looking at, all the flora and the fauna, and there's nature trails to walk across. And you say, nature trails at a racetrack? Yeah, they're here. Uh, so it's, uh, it's just an immersion experience. Well, thank you so much for having us on, you know, ha- having us over here to record our show and your museum. I appreciate you big time. Well, we appreciate your interest, and thanks for sharing the, sharing the word. And uh, yeah, if you're in the Birmingham area, stop by and see us. Absolutely. Jeff Ray, Executive Director of the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. See you guys next week on Guatney Unplugged.